All right, so we're on the fourth of this six-part series on growing wisdom through meditation. And as usual, I wanted to start with um, asking how it went last time with the suggested practices and reflections. So it was a question of cultivating clarity of purpose in daily life. And because um, we had looked at clear comprehension last time and having a sense of the purpose of our, of our activities. And then I guess on the um, cushion, we were noticing the stance or the attitude that we're being mindful with. So whether or not we've brought in a sense of aversion or clinging or striving and trying to relax that and have more of the uh, meta-like attitude. Curious if anyone has any comments on that. I found it uh, worth the effort and uh, not necessarily easy to maintain. So practice will continue, I would say. Yeah, yeah, we're now getting into the more mental development steps mm -hmm. of um, this kind of path that I'm describing through this series. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it does take a little effort. I think I found it um, not so much when I was in my meditation, um, that I was practicing it because on my meditation, I just really trying to get back to a quiet, calm mind that I, uh, as a result of my accident or my, yeah, uh, have lost, but, um, I have found myself practicing it in, you know, when I'm off the cushion and thinking about it a lot. Like, what does this have to do with my purpose? Is this my purpose? You know, like, yeah, uh, that's been really, um, uh, you know, interesting, you know, a, a nice meditation throughout the day. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we can't literally do only things that are directly connected. You know, if we're saying, I want to, I don't know, get the Dharma established in the West. You know, that's part of my purpose. And it's like, how does cooking my dinner have to do with that? But it does because, you know, I can start to say, well, if I'm cultivating my own mind while I'm doing this, I'm improving my ability to teach um, simply by staying present or having, you know, loving kindness while I'm doing this, I'm, I am supporting it in some way. And so we start getting creative about how the practice comes in and what is really practice and what is really supportive. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, more and more as practice goes on, we see that it's less the exact activity that we're doing and more how we're doing it <laughs> that is um, cultivating the mind. So I'm not putting words in your mouth, but um, these are some of the things I find as I try to navigate these same questions as a lay person. Yeah, well, exactly. That's, I was just going to say, what I keep coming up to is like, it's not what I'm doing, it's how I'm doing it. Yep. And because, and, you know, that, that's what just keeps showing up, you know, because, yeah, I'm, I'm a lay person. I'm not a monk. I'm not a nun, you know. Great. Thanks. I was going to say, um, since having these numerous classes online my practice has gotten better um, and I cut out 
television entirely. I, television was um, documentaries and the news. Um, oh, actually, I do still watch the news. Um, but now in place of anything, if I want to stop reading or stop meditating or I'm not cleaning the house or feeding the dog, doing the laundry, um, I listen to Dharma talks and I love Bhante Gunaratana. He's quite old now, so it's hard to listen to him, but he's, he's still very clear. And he's been talking about um, dependent origination. So to me, um, and, and before that, I think I've shared already that I was able to infuse metta into my intention. Um, but now it's, I see every moment, you know, not, I don't see every moment, but you know what I mean? I am more and more appreciative of every moment, which you already just said, it's the way of doing things rather than, you know, some dogmatic approach or whatever. But I do have a sort of an overall, I just, I'm more alive now, um, you know, <laughs> happier and and these teachings that I keep and I have a poor memory so it's really difficult for me um, to remember dogma anyway but um, I do pretty well. so you can just stay in the present moment <laughs> I, I try I try <laughs> yeah no this is good uh, people who are, are sort of of a practice nature who I run into a lot of people like that in the Dharma world um, are some of them are doing quite well on shelter in place and it's not that we would want to live like this forever but um, there's a, a certain part of us that gets nourished that isn't always um, in a more busy life so we're getting to discover our inner hermit if you will at least some of us so all right well good well last time this all sounds great. I love it when people do investigations and it matters less exactly what conclusion you come to, but that you did it and kind of engaged and all of you did, so. So last time we talked about various nourishments for the path, so mindfulness and metta and trust and how those lead to clear comprehension. You know, this sense of knowing what we're doing while we're doing it and having an idea of our purpose and knowing a little, seeing a little bit how the practice starts to come alive in, in our life and on the cushion. So today we're going to look um, at how we can look even more carefully at experience. Now that our experience has kind of come up, come up and we have a, a sense of the multidimensionality of it, uh, we're going to be looking at a, something called investigation, which is a way to um, a particular method for getting more deeply into what is the body and the mind. And as we, uh, it's not really um, our common idea of the word investigation, where we're thinking about things and trying to figure it out. Uh, it's not like that at all. It's sort of an unfortunate translation uh, if you see it that way. But we'll see instead, even th through a little example that we'll do, that it's very much a, a whole being investigation and bringing our whole mind and even our whole body into experience in order to go more deeply into what's going on, which is what the Buddha was pointing us at. Again and again, he said, you know, don't just take the surface appearance. We have to look more carefully if we want to understand where suffering is coming from and how to stop doing that, essentially. 
So investigation is a very key tool for doing that. Um, we will naturally see as we do that some uh, general characteristics of experience, uh, specifically ones that are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta, the three main characteristics that the Buddha highlighted. Those start to come out in if we investigate uh, in the way that the Buddha described. So today we'll talk about investigation and the three characteristics. Okay, so um, turning to investigation and this quality, the Pali word for it is Dhamma Vichaya, and that is um, uh, also the second factor of the seven factors of awakening. So this is, we're getting into serious territory now. These are qualities that would, that are, um, important for the mind to wake up. Mindfulness is one of them also, by the way, it's the first, and so we're on to the second, uh, investigation of states. So this word Dhamma Vichaya, Dhamma is a word that has a lot of different meanings, and so every time you see it in the text, you have to kind of figure out what the, from the context, what it refers to. In this particular case, it seems to refer to phenomena in general, so experience that we're looking at. And um, uh, in general, things that happen are called dhammas. So, you know, like a body sensation is a dhamma, and a, a thought is a dhamma, and uh, a, a sight, a vision is a dhamma, and a feeling is a dhamma. So they're all, all the things that we would be looking at are dhammas. And then uh, vichaya is just a verb that comes from um, the verb vichinati, to examine or investigate. So... Um, Samavichaya, investigation of states, it's sometimes called. So, um, as I mentioned before, this is not really an intellectual examination. It's, um, we're going to be doing an exercise in a moment to demonstrate that, where you'll get to um, examine something, you get to investigate. Um, it's also evident, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, conditions that lead to lead investigation to uh, come into being, you know, what are the conditions that help create it? And it's evident from those um, that this is not merely intellectual, because I'm going to talk about some of them now. I won't go over all of them, but uh, all the conditions that bring about investigation, but I'll bring, I'll, I'll talk about some of them because they're listed in one of the commentaries and they're quite interesting. So the first is that there are some basic real-world prep. You know, if you want to have this investigation of states, your mind to be in that mode, what do you have to do? Interesting, the first, interestingly, the first thing you have to do is clean up your house. <laughs> it actually, well, what it says is purify the basis. And then it explains that what that means is that you have um, a tidy kuti or you know, cabin where you're staying. You have clean clothes on. Uh, your body is washed. So, uh, you know, you're not going to have this kind of keen, you know, investigative state if you're uh, dirty <laughs> and you're in a messy house. And it's an interesting idea, right? You know, sort of, uh, you know, tidy, tidy house, tidy body, tidy mind is kind of the idea. And so I guess I would ask, um, do you agree with that? Does that make sense? I see some nods. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a thousand percent. I agree with that. I I know that um, for absolute sure. Um, yes, and and uh, when I was in my worst state of uh, a chaotic mind, I 
I, I said, well, why don't you at least, you know, um, organize the house and clean the house? Because you can't, you're not able to do that with your mind. At least get the house cleared up. You know that'll make a difference. And of totally. course it did. And it did, yeah. It's always gratifying to clean the house too because you see the effect right away. You know, it's so nice. <laughs> yeah, I have a story about this. I went on retreat in um, January, actually, the last time I was able to go on in-person retreat. And I went to the Forest Refuge, which is a self-retreat center in um, Western Massachusetts. And, um, you know, the it's designed for long-term stays. So I was there for a month. And, you know, I got to my room and whoever the yogi before me was had cleaned the room. And because that's what you do at the end of retreat. And usually the rooms are in in fact, the rooms are always in great shape because people who've just been on retreat are so mindful and organized, and usually the room is spotless. And this room was lovely when I came in. It looked great. Um, you know, I put my things in the closet and around the sink and, you know, made the bed, and that was nice. And then, but even then, over the next few days, I found myself, um, like I would clean up a little bit of dust out of the drawer in the desk. And then I would, you know, wipe a little spot on the mirror. And, you know, I was just like fixing other little things over the first week that I was there. And they were not in an obsessive way, like, you know, I was narrowing my mind, but it just felt natural that I would do these last tiny little things. And then during the retreat, I would um, clean little spots off the mirror as soon as they appeared. And, you know, when I brush my teeth, there might be a little splash of water on the sink and I would wipe that with the towel before I went away, even though I was the only one using the sink and it would have dried by the time I got back. But it just felt like it was part of the retreat to um, keep my surroundings up. So yeah, I totally agree with this also. I found it very supportive of practice. Um, so that's the first, purify the basis. And then the second suggestion is uh, that there's some tidying up in the mind to do also. And it's said that one should uh, impart evenness to the five faculties. And that's a um, fancy way of saying that we get our mind into a balanced state. Uh, the five faculties, uh, we won't go over them in great detail, but they're faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Or if you look at the qualities that we're talking about, which is what we really want to impart. I call them um, interest, energy, awareness, focus, and clarity. So when we have a mind that is interested, um, bright and energetic, aware, has some degree of gathering and is clear, then we're going to be ready to investigate. So that makes sense to me also, is that we do a little bit of mental prep. And then there's a um, there's something about uh, inquiry and reflection. And so I see this as taking a, a cognitive stance of curiosity. If you want to investigate and, and take a look at experience more carefully, we would want to approach with a sense of openness and curiosity and not assume that we already know what's going on in our mind and body. And I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm sitting down on the cushion again, and it's always the same. And now I'm going to go to my breath. And you know, that's not really going to get your mind into a mode where it can see clearly and maybe see something different than you saw before. So we have to think, oh, this is new and fresh. This is a different, this is now how it is now, not how it was before. 
And I, I sometimes think of this as the stance of the scientist, you know, that we come in and uh, even if you're not a scientist, you can appreciate that there's a sort of a sense of when you're looking at nature, you know, it's like, wow, you know, sort of a sense of awe or interest or um, respect for what we're looking at. And in the same way, you know, our mind and body are part of nature. And so we would have a sense of, wow, what can I learn about this? You know, what might be really interesting to, to see something. So there's that. And then um, the uh, couple other uh, you know, are associative. So it says that you should avoid being around people who are distracted and not curious. <laughs> and you should associate with people who are good at investigation. That will also support investigation arising in the mind, which kind of makes sense to me also. It's that, um, yeah, is that you need to choose your friends well and the people that you associate with. For all the other factors of awakening, there are similar lists in the commentaries and they always end with that same thing. So if you're cultivating, you know, joy, for example, it says, avoid people who are depressed and hang around joyful people. Or if you're cultivating concentration, avoid people who are distracted and hang around people who are concentrated. Um, so it, it makes sense. And we, and we do that, of course, in many uh, subtle ways and general ways by going to a Sangha, for example. It's the same concept. So I think that's um, kind of sufficient for uh, giving the setup and what, even though there are a few others named in the commentaries. Um, but I wanted us to try uh, a little exercise to um, practice investigation for ourselves. And you will need a, um, a pen and paper for this. So um, if you could get one of those out, I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Some of you already have them, I know, because you're taking notes. So this will be um, what you're going to write on the paper is not um, anything that you, you're going to have to read out or share with anybody. So it's just it's just for you, although I might ask you about kind of generally what was there. But we're actually going to um, do some investigations. So um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to put an object in front of the camera and uh, you'll have a chance to write down some things about it. And we're going to observe the object um, in three different modes. So please just stay with the mode that I've told you to use. And each one will be a few minutes, uh, which is gonna be a long time for the simplicity of the object. So you don't need to rush to write as much as you can. Um, you can be meditative about observing it and you'll have plenty of time to write down various things in the mode of observation that I'm giving you. So we can start actually with the um, conditions that were just named, right? So having a sense of, um, I don't know, maybe neatness in your space and um, tidying your mind a little bit. So bringing in a sense of relaxation, of awareness, maybe of curiosity about what strange thing Kim is gonna ask you to do. And, um, you know, just a sense of, oh, let's try out this investigation. We want to see if we can touch into what investigation is. And don't worry if you don't know what the Dhamma investigation is. And I'm going to kind of lead you through some different modes. And if you just stay with them, you'll, you'll uh, see as it goes along. Okay, so I'm going to get the object, which is going to block your view of me. That's okay. That's definitely okay. All right, so this worked last time in terms of being the right size. 
Yes, okay, so this is, you see it, it's a little wooden turtle uh, with a rubber band around its neck. Um, and so at first, what I would like you to do uh, is observe it just as a neutral observer. So just write down things that you notice about it that somebody else could also see. So if somebody else were looking at the turtle, they could maybe see that too. Of course, I, maybe you don't need to think that it's a turtle. I mean, that is what it is uh, supposed to represent, but I suppose it could be something else. So things like its color, its shape, its material, pattern, size, brightness, properties of the object. And I'll let you know when to stop. It'll be a few minutes. Sorry about that. Okay, so now um, we'll move on to the second mode of observation. And in this case, you can keep on observing the same object, but include your internal experience of mind. So for example, you could include um, any emotions or feelings that are evoked. You can notice if it's pleasant or unpleasant. Um, feelings, if you have uh, feelings of vulnerability or sadness or joy or interest or anger or boredom. Um, as you keep observing, um, see if you can see things in your mind that are possibly related to the object or observing the object. Okay, so then you can wind up that second mode. And then the third and last mode of observation is that um, include now also the experience of your body. So as you're observing, you can feel if you have sensations that are evoked by the object internally. So it might affect your breath, your eyes, your shoulders or belly, heat or cold, tension, something like that. If you notice anything physically associated with um, this object. Okay. So how was that? That was, um, yeah, so that's a sort of a, um, 
Actually, first, let me just hear any comments that you had from those three different ways of, of observing. Well, the first one, um, the real-time observation, I just, I felt so free. Like I could just look at the object and I mean, it was just a direct, like there was no room for fabrication or meaning or right. story. You had to do things that other people could see also. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you I call that found free. That, That's great. Yeah, really. Uh, oh, just nice to do that. And I, and I like then, and I really got into that. And then I liked how you suggested, you know, each one were, you know, include and adding something else. I, I still got to have that freedom, you know, that I was just adding another layer. And, but um, I, I'm glad it stopped now. You know, I, I was really happy when the body came in like, oh, yeah, I was just in my head. I forgot about my body. So bring the body in. But I was glad the exercise ended there. I didn't. I didn't want any story. I didn't want my story about it, even though it kind of was. <laughs> yeah. No, you've described it very well. That you start out with something that's pretty bare and simple, but and yet um, it isn't quite everything. You can include other things. So you get to include yourself and in the other ones, um, or it doesn't have to be yourself. Other comments on this experience? Catherine. Oh, well, we must have done that for maybe four minutes, and there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yes. uh, even, I mean, and as Mary interesting, said, isn't it? Plenty, it's just plenty a more object. that could happen. That, yeah, that was too short. <laughs> oh, you wanted more time? Okay. Oh, I, I could keep going. I okay, could use cool. my imagination. You were, we were using direct experience without imagining things. And yeah, I, I, mean, I was. I, I mean, there's plenty more that the mind can do. Well, sure. <laughs> if you go off into speculation, you could go for a very long time. But the, yes. the hope was to stay. Remember, we are cultivating yes. direct experience in, in what yes. we're working with. Any other comments on um, from from others on how it was? For me, um, we did this this exercise once before with only two modes of investigation. Yep. So I had a little bit of a heads up. But I, I responded the same way I did the last time. Um, for the neutral observation, um, I just picked out the color, the shapes. Uh, I noticed a sheen coming from on the right-hand side, which I recognized was from light hitting it from that side. I knew it, yeah. sit, it sat flat on, on a, you know, um, it seemed to have feet as a base, but I, I couldn't say for sure that was, that's just my, my neutral understanding. It was brown. It seemed to be brown. Yeah. Um, the rubber band was green. And yeah. The, yeah, I noticed then there were two coils on the rubber band. I noticed that, right. but I you wasn't sure. There's a lot in there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I also wondered when I was, when that first one, I thought, the real-time observation that you know were i wondered what other people were saying seeing too because i thought i bet nobody's put some of the words that i've put down you know because we still are seeing from our own perspective 
This is a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So did you guys have, um, how was it to think about like including your body, for example, and observing it? Did you feel like there was a tension caused by it or was there any effect from the object? I know it can be hard to separate it out compared to all the other body sensations you're having. Yeah, Risa. Well, for the first two modes, you know, um, the internal, is that what you're asking or are you asking the third? I wasn't asking know about, about the third, but the second one is fine too. Anything where you started including your own experience? Well, I had plenty to write down about the first and the second. And the third, I looked and I couldn't feel anything in particular, but then I, I closed my eyes. And I, I often can notice residual images from something that was light and then it, I close my eyes and I can see the image. So I noticed I didn't see that. I, that was a body sensation. And then as I just sat with it, I kind of started laughing. So I had, and I'm, I'm, I have no idea what that was about. I assume it was, I, I can't even assume, but there was some kind of light funniness about it. And I, and, and I had nothing to write down about, except for those two things about the body. Okay. I, I all, answer, so. always wanted to touch it from the beginning. Yeah, we only had visual for this one. Yeah. So that was my, and I wanted to see it better. I kept leaning forward <laughs> to look through my bifocals at it. Yeah, it's a little. But, but isn't that internal? Isn't that in the, that's, I had that listed on my internal. Leaning wanted, forward. I personally subjectively wanted to touch it. That's yeah. true. So that is that would be a good mm -hmm. example of something to write down. So desire to touch, for example, comes up as part of as conditioned by seeing the object and by the exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to unpack I, a little bit. Oh, go ahead, Marilyn. Oh, I was just going to say I love bringing in the body because then I there was also a, a felt sensation mm -hmm. to it that um, I got to have. There are felt sensations, actually. We do have echoes of external things in our body all the time, um, but we often ignore them. Um, but as a positive side, like if you ever walked into meditation hall and felt peaceful, you know, it's like there's something about the space that generates that. Um, and similarly, we're often caught in situations that are a little bit stressful or disturbing, and we probably just ignore that part in the body. Um, so this was an exercise about investigation and the idea was to see what that investigative state of mind was and, and we're starting to talk now about you know what what is investigation in the dharma in the buddhist understanding compared to just the word investigation which is an english word that has certain meanings so the hope was that this teased out a little bit of that so i wanted to maybe talk through that uh, the first mode of observation where you're just a neutral observer is similar to what's done in science, actually, where you're really only supposed to write or see things that, even if you might have a different words than other people, but it's supposed to be things that other people could see about it also. And so there's a sense of third-party verifiability, if you will. And it doesn't include you, you know, not even like you, the personal self, some complicated thing, but it doesn't really include, the observer is supposed to not really be there in terms of its influence. Um, so 
that's, uh, and I loved that Marilyn called this very, uh, I think you said it was peaceful or open or something. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there's a lot free, I think you even said. So there is a sense of, you know, when it's not, it doesn't have to do anything with me, it's, there's a certain peace to that. And this is a little taste of when there's no self, it's more peaceful, <laughs> you know. So science actually kind of imitates that in some ways uh, through the elimination of the self. You're not, you're not supposed to have an influence. However, um, as nice as that is, it's not actually uh, what's aimed for in this quality investigation of states. And the second and third mode are much closer to what Dhammavichaya is about in that we are um, wanting to include our mind and our body, even if we're observing something supposedly external, so that was the only way we could do it together. Um, we'll also do a guided meditation where we're, of course, observing our own internal experience. But the sense that we're bringing in, we're including in that what's happening in the mind, what's the mind's response to what's going on, and even in the body, you know, what's going on bodily as a response to the stimulus, that is all part of investigations, part of Dhamma Vichaya. So it, in, it highlights the fact that we are participants in our experience. Uh, we are not actually neutral observers at all <laughs> of our experience. So this, the scientific mode is very good in the domain that it's in. And um, I think you guys know I was originally a scientist, so I have nothing to say against it. And it's, um, but, it's not the same thing as what uh, the Buddha is pointing us toward. Um, it won't lead you, that kind of investigation won't lead to uh, Buddhist liberation. So, but it's okay. We have many different ways that we can use our mind. So actually though, the idea that um, we are participants in our experience and that what we're seeing has a reciprocal effect on us then, and there's kind of a dialogue going on, that can get very profound. And I, we won't get to that level of profundity in just what we're talking about here. But the investigation of mind and matter that is done through meditative practice goes very deep. And it actually goes all the way to liberating insight, to seeing how it is that the mind is creating the grasping that is leading to the suffering that we're experiencing. So it's a very interesting question, you know, how the mind is creating things moment to moment. And that's what we get to look at. You know, when we hone our mind down and we know how to do it, when we know how to look at experience, we can see some really important and interesting things. So this does point toward a little bit of what we talked about at the beginning. It's not so much what it is that we're experiencing. You know, it's not that we need to have the perfect object. Like, is the breath the best object? Is meta the best object? It actually has a lot to do with how how we're observing it. Mm -hmm. We talked about that last time when I talked about the attitude of meditation and making sure we had the right stance on our experience. Investigation takes that deeper, you know, do, are we looking in the right way, looking at the right things? So that's what we're gonna start talking about next. Marilyn. Yeah, I, this just kind of like, uh, like a light bulb went out. I just wanna, went on. I want to make sure to keep it on, but this brings up why it is so different for each of us. Like there isn't like a cookie cutter anything because each of our minds, you know, and bodies experiences things in a different way and takes it 
in in a different way so we really do have to explore how our mind and our body you know uh, the questions are the same but you know how i experience laboratory and how my is body, different yeah that it's a total different laboratory for each yeah of this is also a very profound point there is an aspect of experience that in a way can never be conveyed to another person you know how this pen feels on my hand as i touch it i could describe it till i'm blue in the face but it's not the same exactly you know it's and so there's a way in which if you get if you really feel this deeply we are totally isolated you know our experience is mm -hmm. totally unique yeah. and yet we have this long 2000 year wisdom tradition um, it's similar enough that we can convey it to each other using this meditative language, using the language of, in this case, that the Buddha laid out, but there are other languages. Western psychology is its own language. Mm -hmm. um, the Buddhist language is designed to create concepts in our mind that allow us to go on this path to freedom um, better than, say, I don't know, chemistry does or something. Um, so it's nice to use the language of Buddhism, and it does it does connect well enough. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's sort of profound that people discovered at some point that their meditative experience was close enough that they could convey to another person with language. You know, like I'm I'm about to do a guided meditation. That's the next thing we're going to do. So I'm invoking with my voice experiences in you. I don't know exactly what they are, but I think they're close enough to what I'm aiming you toward that you'll have some kind of experience that's uh, understandable and I'm, I'm trying to point you in a certain way. So this, it's, it's profound how much is completely personal and individual, personal is the wrong word, individual, and how much can be shared and conveyed among, among others. You know, is there enough of a similarity in what we, that we can name a term investigation of states and we could both come to a clear understanding of what that is. But it's a very good point. And, and in the end, yeah, you, you have to use your own. <laughs> I can't do it for you in the end. But it's okay. We all have enough. Um, everything in your mind and body, whatever it is, even though it's different than other people's, it's sufficient for you to wake up. So please have trust in that. Yeah. Any other comments on this? Okay, it's been um, nearly an hour, so I thought we could uh, have a short bio break, and then when we come back, let's come back at 2.30 um, or the, the half hour, um, and we'll, uh, we'll do a guided meditation then. So, see you in a few minutes. All right, so we'll get started. Please find a posture that's upright and also relaxed, one where you'll be able to sit for a little while comfortably. This will be a guided meditation on investigating the experience of breathing. So we can begin by preparing the mind with some of the qualities that will help bring up an investigative awareness. 
So having some sense of alertness. Energy in the body, perhaps through a upright posture, straightness of the spine. And also a, a sense of calmness. So softening, relaxing the body around that straight spine. So perhaps softening the muscles of the face around the eyes, jaw, relaxing the eyes in the eye sockets. Softening the shoulders, maybe allowing the shoulder blades to slide down the back, the shoulders to drop away from the ears. Inviting some ease through the chest area and down the arms into the hands. Softening the belly. Letting that maybe drop down farther into the abdomen, letting your belly be round. And down through the legs, letting go of any bracing. And as the body gets more still, even a little bit, we can connect into the sensations of breathing. It might be one of the more clear sensations in the body. Perhaps finding the place where the breath feels the clearest, whether at the nostrils or in the back of the throat or maybe the chest or even the belly. 
to some area or spot where it feels particularly easy to connect with. And then as we open to the sensations of the breath, we might consciously adopt a kind of a beginner approach, a sense of curiosity or openness, as if we don't already know what the breath is. We don't know how it is exactly today. Maybe like a child would watch waves on the beach. So we can first notice that there's the in-breath and there's the out-breath. And they're different. At a basic level, we could ask whether the in-breath is long or short, and whether the out-breath is long or short, just however it is. It actually could be any combination. Sometimes there's a short in-breath and long out-breath. It doesn't have to be precise. I know there's middle length also, which is generally long or short. have a clear sense of how the in-breath feels right when it starts. Where do you feel that first? And what's it like as it spreads through the body? And where does it fade away last? Now allowing the mind to spread over the whole location of the in-breath.
And when the in-breath is pretty clear, we can look at the out-breath. Where do I first know that the out-breath is starting to happen? How can I tell? And then feeling it down to the ending of the out-breath, where's the last place that I feel a sensation before it's gone? And without agitating the mind, we can gently expand awareness to consider the breath in the body in general. Is there breath flowing not just in the chest, but is there some breath energy in the belly or in the head or in the legs? Just inviting a sense of the breath anywhere you can feel it in the body. Noticing how it feels like a flow in and out. And then there's also the very important component 
of how the mind is with the breath. As the in-breath comes in, what's the response in the mind? Is there a sense of excitement with the energy that comes in? A little bit of joy? A little bit of fear? On the out-breath, as the body relaxes, what's the feeling in the mind? As it fades away at the very, very end? Is it a little scary? It may change throughout the course of an in and out breath, how the mind relates. Are there places in the cycle of the breath where thoughts tend to creep in, where you're most likely to get lost?
And now and then we can check back into the body. See if there are any spots of tension that have crept in. Maybe bring some ease to those. And again, feeling the breath in the whole body. And observing the mind's relation.
So welcome back. So I wanted to um, talk then a little bit about how investigation um, shows up in the suttas. So that gave us a little taste of staying with the breath in an investigative way. Of course, we don't only do investigation. We also need to calm the mind and cultivate equanimity and joy and other qualities. Um, but there's something um, maybe you saw in that sitting that um, the way of uh, bringing in the way the mind is relating to the object is similar to how I asked in the case of the external object to include the mind as you were looking at it. There's a way in which we're looking at our own participation in the experience, not just trying to be a, a neutral observer of the experience. This will help us greatly when we uh, do some insight, when we do insight practice, it'll help us to have uh, meaningful insights that are useful. And so I'm going to talk also about some of the setup now that's made in the suttas around how we do investigation. In particular, what, what do we investigate? The breath does count, by the way, um, but this, the Satipatthana Sutta, the um, standard description of mindfulness practice, how to cultivate mindfulness in the suttas, includes in the fourth foundation, it's called investigation of dhammas, or mind objects is sometimes how it's translated. And so dhamma vichaya, investigation of phenomena, is very much related to this fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, I have a quote here. I'm going to share the screen. I have a quote from that sutta that I'd like to read. Okay. So I just happened to choose. Um, the fourth foundation goes through a bunch of different topics, and I happened to choose the topic of the hindrances, and I chose the fifth hindrance, doubt. So this is um, how one would investigate in the mind. It says here, there being doubt in him, sorry for the male pronoun throughout, I can change it as I read it, she understands there is doubt in me, or there being no doubt in her, she understands there is no doubt in me. And she also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen doubt and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen doubt and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned doubt. And so that's not meant to be logically complicated or anything, um, but it has essentially two components to it that I um, highlighted in different colors here. So there's the understanding just there is or there isn't doubt in me. So that's a basic investigation. You just you should know whether something is present. And interestingly, you're asked also to know if something is absent, which is not a common mode of understanding for us. But to know, you know, for example, right now to know my mind has no hatred in it, for example. What's that like? Mind without hatred. So that's useful. And then we see also there's this second part, how there comes to be various things. 
So the arising of unarisen doubt. So how is it that doubt comes into existence if it wasn't there? And how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen doubt. So if doubt is there, how does one let go of it? What causes it not to be there? And then also how there comes to be the future non-arising. So this is prevention. You know, how do I prevent uh, doubt from re-arising or from arising? So this is interesting, right? It's, we're looking at conditionality. We're asked not just to see whether or not there's doubt and that's it. Just, you know, check. Check the box. There is, there isn't. Um, it's good to start there. But we're actually asked to do something a little bit more sophisticated in investigation. It's something about what causes these things to happen or not. And so we're starting to see two things. We're starting to see conditionality. What conditions are present? How there comes to be the arising of unarisen doubt? Well, one way to make doubt arise is to get perplexed about something and to sit there and say, should I do this? Should I do that? Oh no, what about this? Pretty soon you'll be in a state of perplexity and doubt about that. Um, not that we never need to ask questions like that, but there's a way we can ask them where we get all tangled up in them, right? We, we've done this in our mind. And so those are conditions, you know, allowing the mind to run over all the possibilities um, uh, like that can, ca can cause doubt. Um, so that we could start to understand that. And then if we saw that enough, we might choose not to do it that way. <laughs> the future non-arising of abandoned doubt. So we would prevent that from happening in some way. So um, this is just one example. Like I said, I, I've given the case of the five hindrances and in particular the hindrance of doubt, but just so that you have a sense of the, how the fourth foundation works. I won't read all of them, but among the contemplation of mind objects, there are five different lenses that we use. One is the hindrances, one is the five aggregates. You don't have to know all these lists. One is the six sense bases, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. So, um, and in each case, we look at whether or not things are there and something about their arising and passing or the conditions for them to come and go. It's a little bit different for each of them, so that's why I'm not gonna go through in detail because that would be outside of the scope of what we're trying to do today. Um, but the, the point is that what we're doing is we're starting to put what I like to call Dharma lenses on our experience. So there's experience, it's happening, um, so we could just totally ignore that and just live habitually, but we're already starting to cultivate mindfulness. We have, we're living a mindful life. So we have, we're noticing what's going on, but we're not just noticing kind of randomly or making up our own language about what's going on. We're given a structure, uh, not, not too rigid of one, luckily, but you know, a structure into which to put all the stuff that's coming in. So it's not just a wash of stuff happening in my body and my mind and my emotions and my thoughts. But we can say, well, actually, um, there, do there are five hindrances to having a focused mind. Here they are, sensual desire, ill will, restlessness, sloth and torpor and doubt. Those are the five. And so then you can start to organize. Okay, if I'm feeling distracted and my mind is not settled, maybe I should look and see if one of these five things is there. 
And that doesn't mean you'll never come up with something that you think is slightly outside of a list, although I found these lists to be pretty good in terms of covering the territory. Uh, you know, it's not, um, it's not intended to be a full uh, life, what, a full description of the universe, like a scientific understanding. It's not the Buddha's philosophy. Uh, it's really tools. You know, these, are, these lists are tools. It's helpful to have this little set of things. And of course, there are other sets. I know there are other sets. Some of you are trained in psychology, and so there, um, some of the stuff is the same, but there's also some different uh, ways of organizing mental experience in Western psychology, and they're fine too. You know, they're, those are geared toward the goals of Western psychology, and these set of things are geared toward the goals that the Buddha was teaching. Um, so I figure if I'm doing my Buddhist practice, I would use this particular set. But essentially, um, so we're cultivating these Dharma lenses. We're learning to see when we're doing our practice uh, through these general ways of seeing things. And then in addition to look at conditionality and uh, impermanence or arising and passing in constancy. I didn't read one that's about that, but for example, in the case of the five aggregates, like form, so that's the body essentially, we would say such is material form, such its origin, such its disappearance. So we should look at what is form, what is the arising of form, where does it come in, and what, how does it disappear? And that's a little bit what we were looking at in the breath at the very beginning, when I asked, notice the very beginning of the in-breath, how it changes, and then how it fades away. Very beginning of the out-breath, how it changes, and how it fades away. This is a mode of observation. Okay, so we're now moving into the realm of what I called at the beginning, the three characteristics. So I'm just gonna give a brief overview of those and then we'll uh, do some small group discussion after that. So the three characteristics, the first one I've already named is impermanence or inconstancy, which is called Pali Anicca. And um, it's not, it's, so we're watching the change. <laughs> we're watching the change of experience. And it's not so much that we need to impose the idea of change. Okay, now I'm going to notice the change of this, or I'm going to um, figure out where this is changing. It's actually that uh, the change will become obvious as we just stay with things, um, like staying with the breath. It's obvious enough that it's already changing. And then, um, you know, we can put our mind uh, to, to really notice and take in that sense of change. Noticing anicca, change, leads us very naturally to notice um, what's called dukkha. And you might be associating that with suffering, which is one translation, but in the sense of the three characteristics, dukkha essentially means that something is ultimately unsatisfying. If it's shifting and changing all the time, um, it can't be inherently a place that will bring happiness to us. The breath is, um, there's, no, there's no place to stand on the breath. It's continually changing, actually. Uh, now, meditating on the breath does get very, very pleasant. It's, uh, that's not a dukkha, well, it's eventually a dukkha experience, but um, that doesn't mean that it can't be pleasant or joyful. That has to do with when the mind gets concentrated on the breath. So that's a quality of concentration. 
the changing physical sensations of the breath themselves are essentially unsatisfying. They're just kind of changing experiences. And then from that, we move on in the mind to understand, okay, this is not very personal. It's just, it's just changing sensations. It's coreless is a word um, associated with anatta. So it doesn't have at its center something that we could point to and grasp onto and say, this, here's the breath. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> There's nothing like that in the breath. And so the Buddha would often lead his monks through a kind of a set of logical deductions about this, um, which I'll just read for your amusement it, it, and for your education. It appears throughout the suttas. So he'll say, what do you think, monks, or to us, practitioners, is form? Is the body permanent or impermanent? And the monks would all say, dutifully, impermanent, venerable sir. So we would say, and is what is impermanent, happiness or suffering? And they would say, suffering, venerable sir, or dukkha. And... Is it fit to regard what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change as this is mine, this I am, this is myself? So they say, no, venerable sir. Because if something doesn't have any essence or substance or core to it, how could we label that as our one true self? <laughs> you know, this is it. This is me, except it's just slipped away. It doesn't it's changing. So something that's changing continually also doesn't have um, this essence to it. So this is, this is what's pointed to by this teaching of anatta. It's not intended to deny our psychological sense of being a person. That is a true experience. Um, happens to be another one that's unsatisfying in the long run. Um, so it's not denying anything about how we live in the world. Um, but it is pointing to that not being the whole story. And um, so these are the, um, I like to call them the big four, the big four areas of investigation or practice that can lead all the way to awakening. And they're not totally separate, but they are anicca, dukkha, anatta, the three characteristics, and conditionality, so dependent arising. Those are excellent areas of investigation um, that if we took them up seriously and took them to their ends, they would lead to full awakening. So you can't go wrong with those. You could, there are other modes of investigation, but if you want to be absolutely safe, those four are really good. There is a wonderful sutta. Um, this will be the last thing I'll, I'll go over before our small group discussion. Um, that is called the Dhamma Niyama Sutta the fundamental law of laws of, of change and conditionality and the three characteristics. So I'll actually just um, read the first part. The Buddha says, monks, whether or not there is the arising of Tathagatas, Tathagata is a word for a Buddha. So whether or not there is the arising of Tathagatas, this property stands, this steadfastness of the Dhamma, this orderliness of the Dhamma, all processes are inconstant. So that's a very interesting statement already. He says, whether or not there's the arising of Tathagatas, so independent of the existence of a Buddha, uh, there is this quality of Dhammas. All processes are inconstant. 
So he's saying this is actually a natural law. It doesn't require the existence of a Buddha. He didn't invent it. It isn't true because he talks about it. Uh, it's actually just true anyway. Whether there were a Buddha in our universe or not, processes would be in constant. And then uh, he goes on and says, the Tathagata directly awakens to that, breaks through to that. Directly awakening and breaking through to that, he declares it, teaches it, describes it, sets it forth. He reveals it, explains it, and makes it plain. All processes are in constant. So the job of a Buddha is to wake up to stuff that's already happening. Uh, he wakes up to the reality of this law of the universe and then teaches it. That's what a Buddha does. The rest of us can also awaken to it. It doesn't require um, the presence of a Buddha even, which is fortunate. We don't have a physical Buddha, but we still have the teaching. So it's said that our universe still has a Buddha in it, in a sense. Um, and then it goes on uh, to the other two characteristics. So it says, whether or not there's the arising of Tathagatas, this property stands, this steadfastness of the Dhamma, this orderliness of the Dhamma, all processes are stressful, which means dukkha, all processes are dukkha. And then the same, whether or not there is the arising of Tathagatas, there is this property, all phenomena are not self. So he declares that these are even facts of the universe. Very interesting to me as a scientist <laughs> is that he's um, pointing out that there are certain laws, but, um, you know, and then he, all we have to do is awaken to them in a sense. Not that that's a trivial task. <laughs> those of us working on it, but um, I find it actually kind of um, comforting in that on the one hand, he says all processes are in constant, so there's nothing in the universe to stand on. Everything is changing, and yet it doesn't change randomly. It changes under the influence of certain deep laws of how things work, one of them being that everything changes, but nonetheless, um, I think this is interesting. There are you know, fundamental ways that the universe operates. So let me stop there. We've talked about how we understand. Let me stop sharing the screen. How we understand uh, dhammas, how we do investigation of states uh, through these different dharma lenses, and how that reveals these actually fundamental qualities of processes of what we observe to be inconstant, to be unsatisfying or stressful, and to be not self in some way. And if we don't understand all of those completely deeply, it's okay. That means we're still working on awakening. Um, but that's the nature of this quality that we're looking at, this investigation of states. Are there any questions at this point? or comments. Risa? Um, first of all, just I'm surprised nobody asked, but what's the, the location of that sutta? Oh, it's um, AN 3.134. Thank you. Then I just, I guess I've, something really nice happened because, to me in my experience. Um, because of these classes. Uh, lots of stuff has been happening, but I could mention something about investigation. Um, 
I'm a very uh, emotional person. I'm impulsive. Uh, I've always been empathetic, very empathetic. Um, the other day, I, as a 70-year-old, having practiced for 20 years now, I saw on the news a, a film, a video of a nine months, maybe year old baby in a, maybe in Syria, I'm not sure where. And the baby was shaking like mad, looking straight at the camera. I immediately broke into tears. And then I started investigating. Hmm. I was like, oh, this is similar to what has, I've always experienced. I'm very empathetic, I'm very emotional. But uh, the Dharma has taught me to look down more. And, and I realized I needed science because I thought, hey, this has got to do with, this is the body, this is something. So I, I started plugging in stuff to Google. And at first I came up with all sorts of, um, you know, psychiatric problems. But then I came upon this thing called mirror neurons. And it explained what, how we learn by, you know, this, this thing is in many parts of our brain, these neurons. And I mean, you know, cause I knew. Yeah, we can sense directly in our, in our mind, what we're seeing. Yeah. Yes. In another. And I knew that this wasn't mine. I mean, having the right. emotional thing, yeah. I, because of the Dharma, I knew I, I knew to investigate and to stop and like not adopt it as though, oh, I'm emotional, like I always have. And, and not to take deeper. it on as yours. Yeah, not take it mm. on. And, but I still felt it. I mean, and it's real and, and it's worthy to feel that. But I was delighted that there was this departure from my subjective view of my my personality <laughs> very nice yeah it, is that we, all phenomena are not self yeah all phenomena are not self yeah actually at the subtlety of this yeah. sutta um, is that the processes are inconstant and stressful but phenomena are not self and there's a some slight distinction <laughs> so um, it sort of implies that there is something that is uh, constant and is not stressful, but is still not self. And sometimes people take this as evidence that Nibbana is, is that extra thing. Um, but yes, in general, what, what Rhys is pointing to is um, we can have an experience that we reckon that we're feeling clearly inside of our mind and body, but um, we understand that it's not coming from within our mind-body process. We're somehow taking it in externally. A little bit like this experience here, right? Sometimes people will look at this and they'll say, oh, that looks like something from my mother. And then, you know, then there's an emotional response. Well, you know, the, the stimulation is here. Of course, it's even more powerful when we're using our mere neurons, which come from another being. I had the experience once where I went to, um, a memorial for somebody that I didn't know. It was actually kind of an experiment. Um, and I, I was moved to tears by some of what people shared, but it couldn't have been anything from in me. I literally didn't know the person. It was a big memorial and I could just sit uh, unobtrusively in the back. 
but I understood as I was crying and just picking up the grief in the room and uh, that it clearly wasn't mine. I mean, it couldn't have been. And so that was also a similar, similarly powerful experience. Yeah. Actually, you've played nicely into what I was hoping to do in the um, breakout room, breakout groups, which we'll do now. Um, I'm going to divide you guys into two dyads. Uh, so you'll have a chance to talk with someone else. And um, the question is, can you think of something about yourself that you thought was certain or permanent or assured, something about you, that then changed or ended at some point uh, so that you can no longer say that is true uh, about yourself? And so just share... Um, share something along those lines and maybe we'll let one person speak and get all the way through and then switch and the other person speaks without being interrupted uh, in the, both cases and then after you've both spoken uninterrupted you can talk together is that okay um, so I'll give you guys each a couple of minutes to share your story um, and then I'll uh, or your you know your example and then we'll switch so until I give the signal for the switch to the second person, um, just let the first person speak. And we could start with the person who has, I don't know, the longest hair can start first. Okay, go for it. All right, so I'm, I'm curious if you wanted to share anything about uh, what you learned together in that. Things that you were sure you were true, were true about yourself, but then somehow turned out not to be. Well, I, I could share um, that you know, something that uh, came up for me is something that's not particularly pleasant that I, you know, discovered about myself, but we were in the discussion when we talked, I realized, you know, that, that uh, you know, while it isn't pleasant, it isn't scary because now with the Dharma lens, I sort of have an understanding that, well, you know, it's not, this is, this is here for the moment to, to look at if you want or, or not, but it's going to change. And, you know, do, I, it doesn't feel like I'm stuck anywhere. It's just nice. Yeah. The fact that it's there. Yeah. Nice. That's one of the, the gifts actually of understanding Anatta even, even a little bit is that we realize it's okay. It's going to change. <laughs> I'm not stuck with the parts of me that aren't so pleasant or whatever, you know, they're also not personal. Catherine, you had your hand up also. Uh, about my change, I would, I, I heard myself tell Amy that I could, she asked, and a, a nice answer, <laughs> I got to say that my change happened recently and I could point directly to the teaching from last week, meshing with other teaching from an, another source to say that the change was uh, possible, 
with mindfulness. Nice. That's often the case. You know, it's a, this, this practice is what helps us let go of various aspects of who we thought we were. You know, there will be other ones revealed. And it's, it's the self is a fluxing, changing phenomenon. It's, you're not going to go away completely. Well, you might in some sense. But um, it's, it's nice. It's actually very freeing. And not as the quality that people are afraid of when they hear about it intellectually, but when they experience it, it's such a relief. <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's better than it, than you look, than it looks like it's going to be on the surface. I can say for myself that when I was um, about, I don't know, 17 or 18, I guess around when I was going off to college, I, um, I was pretty sure, because um, I knew a lot more then than I do now, um, I was pretty sure that I, in my life I was never going to have anything to do with two things, which because I thought they were not what I was about at all. And those two things were business and religion. I was pretty sure that um, both of those were evil and terrible. And uh, several decades later, uh, I'm a Dharma teacher and I have an MBA. <laughs> so I guess that didn't work out exactly as I thought. Um, neither, however, I can say that um, the values that I was speaking from when I said that, I haven't changed at all. I didn't end up relating to business or religion in um, ways that I, the ways that I was rejecting at the time, I didn't turn around on that. Um, but we have to be careful not to limit ourselves uh, in how, where we're going in life. <laughs> so that's just a very mundane example. The Dharma lets us go even farther than that. Okay, so I guess the encouragement is don't get stuck on ideas about how and who you are, because it might change at any time. <laughs> Something might fall away. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I thought we would do another um, meditation then. And if you need a uh, stretch or something, because it's been about an hour, um, you could get up for a moment. I'll leave the camera on and just see when everybody's ready again. All right, so finding a posture again that's upright and also relaxed and allowing the eyes to close. And just feeling into the seat where you're sitting. So your seat against the chair or the cushion, your legs or feet against the floor. Allowing yourself to sense the stability of where you're sitting and just let the seat support you, relaxing and letting go into it. And also sensing the uprightness and the alertness of the body. It's actually easier to be alert when we are at ease letting the seat support us.
softening the body, the head, the face, shoulders, the belly area, the legs. Just inviting ease throughout the system. Touching into the sensations of breathing, simple flow, very simple sensations of heat and coolness. The touch of the air on the nostrils. The sense of Maybe expansion, shift of clothing against the skin on the in-breath. And a relaxation and a different kind of motion on the out-breath. You're sensing the very elemental sensations of breathing. Tuning in to the fact that breathing is never constant, continually changing process, many different sensations. Each individual sensation flashes in and flashes out pretty quickly, adding up to a whole changing process. I'm just sensing this experience of anicca, inconstancy.
And we can include also the mind flowing along with the breath. Sensing the different feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, as the breath moves in and out. And our various mental responses. There may be thoughts or emotions, or even if those are quiet, there are intentions coming in and out. The mind too, changing. And it may be that resting in the flow is restful for the mind and body. Even letting the change come very rapid, each moment coming in and out of existence. Or if at any time the mind gets a little scared of all the change, can we ground in the breath and the body?
Just a flux of experience, nothing ever the same. Whether or not there is the arising of Tathagatas, this property stands, this steadfastness of the Dhamma, this orderliness of the Dhamma, all processes are inconstant. Okay, so sometimes uh, meditating with Anicca is wonderfully um, restful, actually, because you realize that you don't have to do anything. It's all just doing itself, and you can just kind of rest in the, in the flow. But uh, as I alluded to, it is possible also for the mind to get scared of um, something that has no ground and can feel like it's just continually draining away. So um, don't worry about it. <laughs> Either way is fine. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, there's, uh, it's important that the mind keeps seeing change and gets more and more used to that. So I do encourage meditating on a Nietzsche um, frequently. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll stop at this point and just ask if there are um, questions on today's material as we're kind of um, getting close to the end. But investigation leading to some glimpse of the three characteristics of inconstancy, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Catherine. I had a little bit of technical difficulty in and out, um, and I'm not as familiar as some people with the um, words. So, Anicca is inconstancy, yeah. permanence? Okay. Anicca, yeah. Anicca. How do you spell that? A-N-I-C-C-A. Thank you. Yeah, good. So practice gets really interesting when we start doing investigation. Um, we start to see more deeply than just our usual 
issues that we have when we sit down and our usual aches and pains. It's not that those go away necessarily. Our mind still has these preoccupations and our body still has some issues. But um, if we can get more often into this more Dhamma investigative mode, it does, it helps our practice, helps our path. So asking questions about what's present, what's absent in terms of Dharma qualities, the hindrances or the factors of awakening, asking, um, sort of noticing what conditions are here. I sit down and my mind is agitated. Okay, what are the conditions that are supporting that to be present? My mind is not agitated because of something that happened last week, even though I might think that. Um, my mind to be agitated at this moment, the conditions for that must be there. And so, you know, what is supporting it right now? Uh, believing is a common one. I'm believing something and I'm getting agitated about it. Or, you know, there might be something in the body. I'm, I'm really tired. And so my mind is kind of revving up on caffeine, trying to keep itself awake, something. So, you know, we can look in, in the moment, what are the conditions? And then we can consider over time, how is it that I can move away from the hindrances and generate more of the factors of awakening or um, other by faculties, other useful qualities. Um, not that we get this perfectly all the time and we're gonna be able to sit down and just program up what we want, but we can at least start to get a sense you know, through this kind of investigation. And then, as I said, it gets really interesting because we start getting down deeper into how the mind and the body are working. And the heart loves this. The heart actually wants to do investigation. It's so interested. It's like, oh, really? And we start to see, um, you know, how suffering comes about. We might see in a given moment, um, it, it'll be you know unique to us, but we'll see the mind start to go for something and we can see ourselves leaning toward getting angry or something. And suddenly we'll have a, a day when the mind says, oh, not gonna do that. And it like takes another route. And we think, oh, I was gonna get angry, but then I'm not angry, what, what happened? And of course we're happy about that. Um, and But this is because we noticed at some point in the past, we noticed at some level, doesn't have to be conscious and we figured it out and could write it all down, but at some level of our heart, we saw, oh, when I go that way, it's really painful <laughs> and I'm just sitting here on the cushion and you know I don't need to get angry at this moment. And so the mind does something else. And so we're starting to, um, through wisdom, this is the cultivation of wisdom, we're starting to see that there are choices um, and we're actually able to do them because we've done the experiment, we've done the investigation, we see how it works and we make a different choice, even at a heart level, not even at an you know, engineering level of our mind. So this is great, this is the brilliance of investigation. But what we'll discover as we do it is that if we do only investigation, we'll be limited by essentially by how calm our mind is. We can't see you know, the mind is agitating at a sort of a natural vibration frequency associated with our regular everyday mind, there are things we can't see that are more subtle than that. And so we start wishing, oh, maybe I could settle down a little bit more, then I could see more. And that's true. <laughs> so next class, we're going to talk about calm, concentration, <laughs> and the factors of awakening. So settling the mind down, then you can see even farther. You want to see the, down into the, I'm using that image from the beginning, uh, that uh, shoals of fish and, and shells down at the bottom of the lake. Um, you have to get the mind calmer. 
So we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk also next time about the emergence of the seven factors of awakening, of which investigation is one and also mindfulness, but we'll see the others and how those um, can come into play more and more as the mind settles down and, and manages to let go of the hindrances. When the hindrances go down, the seven factors of awakening come up. That's how it works. So it's exciting stuff. We're getting into the mind. Um, oh, I need to put up, I wanted to share um, suggestions for practice over the next several weeks. So my recommendations based on what we learned today are that you might continue with the Anicca meditation. So settle the mind for a little while on some object and then open to the changing nature of that object. The breath is a good one, but you can use body sensations. You can even use metta, metta changes. Um, it's not usually used that way, but you could do that. So, uh, or hearing, hearing is an excellent one. So breath, maybe breath, body, or hearing. Those are the easiest three to do for Anicca. And then in daily life, we can, um, Notice, a little bit like we did in that exercise, um, notice the experience in the body and the mind as we observe things externally. If you walk around all day, you see things in your house or on the screen or whatever, um, or you're listening to your partner talking, what is going on simultaneously in your mind and body? So starting to have a sense of, this is called investigating both internally and externally. <laughs> Um, at the same time. And, and so we see, of course, that our mind is tracking along with what's going on and we're having all kinds of reactions in our, in our body, in our mind. And so just being more aware of those as part of the total picture. And we start to see that our internal experiences are actually shaping what we might think is an external experience. There is some interplay there. And so it's not good, it's not bad, it's just how it works. And so we can start to see some of that. Um, and then in addition, just as a reminder, the upcoming sessions, we have two more sessions together. So on Saturday, we're going back, the, the next two are on Saturdays. Um, this is a Sunday. So Saturday, August 22nd, in a few weeks, actually that's in about five or six weeks, so it's actually pretty long. We'll do calm concentration and the seven factors of awakening. And then on Saturday, September 12th, just a Few weeks after, a couple weeks after that, we'll do um, wisdom and and beyond, so and awakening. Okay, so any final comments that would help us feel complete? Otherwise, we'll finish maybe. Thank you very much. That's really going to be helpful okay, for good. the next time. Yeah, I wish you very well in your practice and, um, and everything else in life in these unusual and interesting times that we're in. But it is a great time for Dharma practice. So here we are. And um, yeah, have a wonderful time until our next session. Yes, Take thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.